I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Talking France. It's our final episode of this current series, and it's probably one of the most important we've recorded given what's been happening over the last week across France. In this episode, we will obviously be focusing our attention on the social unrest that has followed the police shooting of a teenage driver near Paris last week. Our politics expert, John Litchfield, will have plenty to say to help explain the rioting, looting of stores, arson attacks on schools and town halls, and the frequently violent clashes between youths and French police that have taken place over recent nights across the country. He'll also look at whether the chaos and disorder will bring about any real change in France. Our team at the local editor, Emma Pearson and Jen Mansfield will explain the extent and cost of the destruction as well as look ahead to what might happen next and give some advice for tourists planning on visiting France. And away from the riots, they'll also look into the near future and explain what we can expect in France this summer from drought to traffic jams and from heat waves to strikes. And we'll also examine what foreign parents living in France should expect if they put their non-French speaking children in local schools. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in once again. We hope you'll find the next 30 minutes or so both interesting and informative. So each night over the past week, towns and cities across France have been the scene of rioting, looting and violent clashes between youths and police. This social unrest followed the shooting at close range of a teenager in the Paris suburb of Nanterre. The riots were initially just local disorder in Nanterre, but the trouble quickly spread to towns and cities across France, although it was mostly concentrated in the deprived, low-income suburbs of the big towns and cities. Buildings, including town halls and schools, were targeted by arsonists. Cars, buses and trams were torched. Shops looted and fireworks and all kinds of projectiles fired at police. Although things appear to have calmed, there is still a huge police presence in towns and cities at night. And the situation both on the streets and politically remains very tense. And of course, so much damage has been done that will take a long time to repair. Jen, let's start with putting some numbers that help tell the tale of the scale of these riots. So we will first start with 45,000. We've seen tens of thousands of police out there. Over the weekend, 45,000 law enforcement officers were sent out across France each night to maintain order. The Ministry of Interior reported that around 700 of them had been injured in some way during the riots, though we don't have any official information about the number of rioters injured. And then the next number is 5,000. As of Sunday, 5,000 cars had been burned since the start of rioting in France. In comparison, over the course of three weeks worth of rioting in 2005, after two teenagers died trying to escape from French police, France saw approximately 10,000 cars burned. The next number is 3,354. That is the total number of arrests that were made as, as of Monday afternoon uh, across the country for the past week. A large part of them were concentrated in the Paris suburbs, and almost half of them, about 1,300, occurred on Friday night. The next number is 1,000, and that is the number of buildings that have been burned or looted across France as of Sunday. This spans from public buildings, which rioters saw as a symbol of the state, uh, like the local town hall or even schools, and then as well shops, banks, and tobacco stores, uh, which have also been burned and looted, and at least 250 local police and gendarmerie stations have been burned. 
Now, the business group MEDEF also gave us another number, and that number is more than 1 billion euro. Um, and that is the amount of damage that has been done to businesses. This includes those uh, hundreds of shops looted, 300 banks vandalized, and 250 tobacco. And on top of that, regional public transport authorities for Paris estimate that there is about 20 million euro worth of damage uh, to the transport infrastructure, and that includes those buses uh, that have been burned. Jen, one number that's causing quite a bit of controversy is 1.3 million euros. Just explain this figure for us. Yes, this has caused quite a bit of controversy in France. This is the number that at the time of recording the podcast is the amount of money that has been donated to the family of the police officer who shot Niall M uh, in a fundraiser on the website GoFundMe. The fundraiser was started by Jean Messia. He's a French economist known for having far-right views and for having supported Eric Zemmour's campaign. Mm, Emma, let's look ahead to the next few days. What do we know about what's going to happen in the coming days in France? Well, we know that Emmanuel Macron, who was forced to cancel this planned state visit to Germany because of the crisis. So over the last couple of days, he's been meeting with political leaders and local mayors in an attempt to sort of calm down the situation. There has been, as Jen said, this massive police presence, but the government has resisted calls from those on the political right to either sort of declare a state of emergency or bring in the army. And instead, they've tried to focus on sort of initially at least attempting to cool the anger over the police shooting. And we should mention that the officer in question has been charged with murder. There have, however, been some restrictions that are put on sort of daily life for everybody, both by local and national governments. So the national government has ordered that buses and trams stop running at 9pm because they've been targets of rioters. The sale of fireworks, which are commonly used as missiles against the police, they've been banned. Uh, and the sale of petrol in cans has also been banned. And several local mayors, particularly those in the Paris suburbs, have also opted to impose a nighttime curfew. Those restrictions are expected to be gradually relaxed this week if the situation remains calm. And the last couple of days have been sort of notably calmer. So hopefully things are, are quieting down, but definitely expect to see a heavy police presence in towns and cities in the coming days. Mm. Jen gave this figure of over 3,000 arrests. I think it was over 3,300 arrests in recent days, over 1,000 on Friday night alone. What do we know about those who've been arrested, those who've been involved in the rioting? Yeah, I mean, the sort of the data that we have on the rioters mostly does come from the people who were arrested, although we have also seen quite a few media interviews and clips on social media as well. And there are a few things that really stand out about the people who were involved in these riots. And the first thing is that they are almost all French. The far right keeps talking about immigrants and problems with immigrants, but almost all of those arrested have been French nationals. They're often of African or Maghrebi descent, but these are kids who are born and raised in France, and they're mostly second and third or even fourth generation immigrants. And that's also the profile of Nahel V, yet the teenager who was shot by police. He was French of Algerian descent. And the other thing that really strikes out when we look at the arrest figures is that they're young. The average age of those arrested is just 17. And we've seen kids as young as 13 or 14 arrested. Now, even if the actual ringleaders of the riots are a little older, we can kind of see from the video footage that the rioters are mostly young and mostly male. And the third thing that really stands out is that they're not politically affiliated. You know, I've, I've seen these referred to as kind of anti-Macron riots or even like anti-government protests in some foreign media, but I don't think that's really what's happening here. I don't think I've seen any of the rioters reference Macron directly, and there's certainly no criticism of any kind of particular policy or of a political party. This is more of a, a general outpouring of anger at police violence specifically, but more generally of this sense of being excluded and forgotten by the French state. This is a good time to bring in our politics analyst, John Litchfield, who joins us as ever on the line from Normandy. John, in his recent column, described the invisible barrier between the multiracial 
palatial suburbs and the mostly prosperous white inner cities as perhaps the most dangerous fault line in French society. Every 10 to 20 years, the banlieue explode like a not quite so dormant volcano, John wrote. I asked John, how can we explain this latest explosion? It's sort of interesting that this is exactly 18 years later, or not quite 18 years later, and that large number of the kids who were taking part in these riots and the boy who was shot dead by the policeman at the beginning were 18 years old or less. So they've all been born essentially since the last explosion. It's a whole new generation that's grown up with the same, well, the same opportunities as well and the same, uh, but the same sense of frustration, the, the same sense of being rejected, the same uh, tensions with the police that were, were true in the previous generation. Now, a lot of that previous generation has moved on, you know, and have become fathers of families, um, not many mothers of families because the, the girls in the barnyard don't seem to get involved in this, which is another issue. So this whole new generation has grown up, which seems to be even more disaffected some of them. I mean, you know, I think it's interesting, and there was a good article in The Guardian this week, actually, that pointed out that if there are 200 kids in an area who are out on the street causing absolute mayhem, there are probably two or 3,000 who are not out on the streets and causing mayhem, who are back at home, you know, maybe being held back by their parents, maybe scared, maybe just don't have the same sense of complete rejection, maybe hoping to do more with their lives. So it's not everyone in the bottom here, and that's one of the things that disturbs me about a lot of, a lot of the commentary here that you hear in France, suggesting that somehow this is a kind of mass revolt of the Barnier. It's very disturbing. The level of violence is what was most disturbing this time, way beyond what we saw in 2005. How you explain that level of violence, how you explain how quickly it went uh, this time compared to last time, right around the country in a couple of days, I think that has a lot to do with social media, as, as Macron said, uh, you know, as an element, element of each housing state, each town, each region wanting to be as, you know, to show its anger as much as or more than the next, and, and then burst about it on TikTok or Snapchat. So there are all kinds of factors involved here. And, you know, it's very difficult to find much optimism. Well, John, looking ahead to how France can prevent a future explosion along, you know, like we, what we've seen in recent days, will anything change? We're talking about police reform or major investment in the banlieue. Is there any kind of hope that we can avoid this in future? I did a lot of reporting on, on the riots in 2005 and also a year later went back to the part of uh, North Paris suburbs where they started. And, you know, you went there then and the state of the housing, the state of the transport links, opportunities for jobs were miserable. You know, you could see what the background of a uh, sense of rejection, a sense of uh, alienation had, had been. A lot has changed about that, you know. I mean, the, the, the transport links have been much improved, hence the numbers of trams and buses that were burned in the last few days. Job opportunities maybe have improved as well because generally speaking the unemployment is reduced in France. A huge amount of money has been spent on the Bonnier in the last uh, few years. The problems remain. There is, you know, two things I think. A sense amongst some, not all kids in the Bonnier, that they will never be accepted as France, that they're always being rejected, they're always inferior citizens in this country. Not necessarily true. You know, you can make it to the Bonnier if you're determined to do so. Not everyone has that amount of courage and determination. And secondly, the police, as you say, there is a constant reminder for these kids that they're regarded as inferior because of the way the police treat them. Police have a difficult job in dealing with huge amounts of crime, drug trafficking in the Bonnier. You know, kids are killing each other in the Bonnier all the time because of gang violence. There's never an explosion in the Bonnier when, when you know, a similar 17-year-old boy is killed by other 17-year-old boys for the, for the next city. But it's a very complicated situation in that way. And it's difficult without 
really a big change in the way police attitudes work and a big change maybe in, in, in the effectiveness of education in the Bonnier. I fear that this is, you know, something that's going to happen every generation. John, just on the subject of French police, the police unions described the rioters as, as vermin and savage hordes whilst the French government quickly rejected a call from the UN to address what it referred to as deep issues of racism and racial discrimination in law enforcement. It doesn't sound like there's much willingness to reform the French police here. I fear there isn't. You know, I think in a sense you could see over the last few days why that is. You know, the the police, in a sense, are the origins of what happened, but they're also the solution as far as the government is concerned. You know, you you can, uh, if you're not sort of very biased against the police, say that the police reaction has been extremely courageous and uh, there hasn't been any reported incidents of extreme violence by the police, even though since the, the, the rioting began, even though um, they were under severe provocation and were being attacked by people who seemed quite willing to you know, cause fatalities amongst the police if they got the opportunity to do so. So there are two sides to it. You know, the, the, the way the police behave when they're kind of you know, operating individually or in little groups in the Barnier is often disgraceful. And I think this incident, because it was caught on camera when many are not, is what's caused the explosion. But, you know, the government relies on the police. It needs the police to save the country from this kind of uh, explosion. And so, you know, they have to try and tread carefully. President Macron and uh, Domina, uh, the interior minister, infuriated the police by speaking out and saying that they believe this policeman had been wrong and, and uh, they were furious also the unions that the policeman was put in, in jail rather than released on bail. At the same time now Macron's had to, had to last night I think visited a big police barracks in the 17th arrondissement of Paris to thank the police for their efforts over the last few days. So, you know, uh, the chances of that being any kind of very radical change in the police, especially when, as you say, the police unions themselves seem to share the attitudes which the individual policemen on the, on the street demonstrate by using this kind of words. Obviously, they were talking about the kids who were rioting, not all kids in the Bonnier, but using words like vermin and foreign hordes and so on as they did, it suggests that there are deep attitudes of, of racial bias within the police, even at the levels of the police unions. John, just finally, on the political level, what does this mean for Macron? This is kind of, as you referred to, the third kind of big crisis of unrest he's faced, you know, since he's been in power after the Gilets Jaunes and the the pension protests. What does this mean for him? And does this open the door even further for Marine Le Pen at the next presidential election? The obvious sort of first reaction of anyone is that this is uh, this is a kind of extended election clip for, for Marine Le Pen next time, and she will no doubt use many of the images when she when she stands as she will in 2027. I would still not say that she's by any means a shoe in or like, likely to win, but it certainly you know brings that possibly nearer. She's playing the game quite cleverly, so she thinks because she's not been very prominent in, in commenting on this. She's been using her, her lieutenants to, to sort of make the more extreme comments and she's been trying to appear more sort of balanced and, and presidential and statesman-like. As part of her game of, of seeming like as someone who is electable, someone who can be president of the country and is not an extremist herself, 
I believe that in her heart, she isn't maybe an extremist, but she certainly belongs to a, a very extremist party. And uh, President Le Pen, I think, would produce even more explosions of this kind if we were ever to be confronted with one. But, you know, it's interesting that two years after the riots last time, people said much the same, that this was going to be a shoo-in, or at least a big help for, for her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, after the 2005 riots. He'd reached the second round of the presidential election in 2002. Even people talking then about him winning in 2007. He got 10% in the first round. So, you know, these things are never linear in that way, you know, and it's a long way off before 2027. Macron can't stand again then. Yes, this is a calamity for him in the sense that he just hoped he was emerging finally from this kind of back-to-back series of crises he's faced, some of which of his own making, one could say, through his own policies, some of which not at all of his own making, including this one, in a sense. So it's, it's a calamity, for, and it's a calamity for the French image abroad, all those things. It's a lot be, depends on the way Macron reacts. Now he has to try and find some typically Macronian, you know, one thing, not the one thing or the other, a little bit of this, a little bit of that response to this, to try and find the middle ground. And a lot of people in the country don't go along with the idea that the police are, are always in the right. They don't go along with the idea that, uh, you know, the, the, the kids in the Bonnier are always right. The two extremes that there are that have shown the two tribes that have emerged after this, which is disturbing. The country does appear to have been polarised by it. But there are a lot of people out there who are trying to understand and, and trying to grapple with what's going on who don't necessarily subscribe to those extremes. Um, he has to find some way in the next few days of appealing to them. I think he does have to say he'll try and do something about the police. But as I was saying just now, that is going to be very difficult for him to actually to, to deliver. And what you do with the Vanya, I don't know. I mean, everything in terms of money uh, has been done. How you persuade this fringe of kids, it's not all of them, but it's a big fringe of kids that they're somehow, their future lies in, in France, uh, not in this kind of destructive behaviour. I, I don't really have an answer to that. I don't know that anyone does. Thanks to John for giving us his analysis as ever. And just a reminder to listeners, you can find all of John's columns on the local.fr. Now, we know many of the locals' readers, and indeed, no doubt, many listeners have been watching events in France from afar and are asking whether... This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com they should cancel an upcoming trip hotel industry chiefs in france have lamented the fact that many people already have cancelled trips. The head of one organisation for independent hotels and restaurants blamed the cancellations on 
foreign TV networks for showing images of Paris on fire and blood, which does not correspond to reality. Uh, it's not just foreign media, Emma. Even governments have issued warnings to travellers in recent days. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. Both the UK and the US have issued travel warnings about France, although they aren't actually advising people not to come. It's just a, a be alert type warning. But we've also heard several businesses and international organisations who are advising their staff not to travel to France. But in truth, daily life remains pretty normal here. Um, I mean, as we said, things do seem to be calming down. But even during the height of the uh, of the riots, they weren't taking place everywhere and all the time. The trouble was largely limited to evenings and nighttime. And the geographical spread is not even across France at all. So rural France remains unaffected so far. And small towns have generally seen either little or no trouble. The worst of the violence really has been concentrated on cities. And even then, it's mostly in the, the deprived low-income suburbs that surround the cities. There have been central areas of cities, including Paris and Marseille, which did see some violence and some looting. But most of the trouble was centred on the on the Bollier. Um, central Paris on Friday night, which is one of the worst nights of the riots. In the city centre, it was just full of people at bars, restaurants, cafes who were generally enjoying themselves, I can confirm, because I was one of them. Yeah, I like this quote from one French tourism industry chief who told AFP, Tourists who know us well, who know France well, like the Belgians or the British, who are also have problems themselves in the suburbs, will be able to make sense of things. I think there's a, a sense, Emma, that most tourists who do know France well will kind of work out their own, you know, way of coming to France and will probably, you know, do their own research and work out, like you say, it's not been everywhere. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's, uh, you know, the, the city centres have been very normal. And I mean, if, if you sort of follow social media accounts of people who live here, you'll see that over the weekend, people were just, you know, going shopping, meeting family and friends, going out for dinner in restaurants, exactly the same as a normal weekend in France, really. Now, as you'd expect these days, the riots and unrest have been captured in thousands of videos uploaded to social media sites, whether TikTok, Snapchat or Twitter. But this also makes it easier to throw a lot of fake news around Emma, or at least fake videos, photos and claims. Run us through a few of them so at least we can say what has not happened in France. Yeah, there were some pretty mad rumours out there um, and it did seem to be especially centred on the English-speaking uh, media and social media. There were quite a lot of mainstream English language titles that really were heavily implying that the whole of France was on fire, which wasn't really true. But there were also some crazy rumours circulating online and a lot of video footage that was being posted that was either from a completely different place or time or was just fake. The leader of a British far-right group was just one of many people who shared a still from the 2017 film The Fate of the Furious. Apparently it's part of the, the Fast and the Furious franchise. Uh, and this still was showing cars being pushed off the top of a multi-storey car park and he showed that claiming that this was happening in France. That did not happen anywhere at all. It was just a still from a film. There were quite a lot of people also I spotted claiming that a military coup was underway and also a lot of people claiming that the government had cut off the internet while this was happening. There was in fact a global technical problem with Twitter, but that was happening everywhere. It was not just in France. And at the time we are recording, the government very much remains in place. Emma, I got a message from a friend on Saturday who, who was up in Sweden actually. He said, Ben, mate, are these videos of zoo animals real? What's he talking about? Really? Yeah, this was my favourite rumour, actually. And there were quite a few of these type of things. Various video clips. There was one showing a zebra running down the street. Uh, there was one that was showing a gorilla in front of a tower block building. And there was one of an elephant in what looked like an underground car park. But they all claimed that rioters had freed animals from the zoo and that they were running free in, in the streets of the big cities. Most of these clips turned out to be several years old and often from different countries. And last we heard, no French zoo claims to have lost any animals. And I've certainly not seen any zebras on the street. 
Street to Paris view? No, I haven't actually, no. Um, I mean, look, it's an unpredictable situation, but at the time of recording, we can safely say that all animals in French zoos are safely, you know, where they're meant to be. However, you know, do follow the news on our website, thelocal.fr, for all the latest on the aftermath of the riots over the next few weeks. Now, this leads us nicely into our next section about what to expect in France this summer. Jen, you're going to start us off. The riots look to have calmed down at the time of recording, but what else can we expect over the next days, weeks in France throughout the summer? So summer usually sees at least some strike action in France, especially for workers who are in the tourism and travel industries. So peak travel times tend to be kind of synonymous with strikes because workers do have more bargaining power. So far, there haven't been any major strikes announced for France, although that doesn't mean that there won't be any. We have seen several calls for strike action in France's neighbors, though. So that includes airport workers in Geneva, air traffic controllers in Italy, and airline pilots in Spain. Basically, it seems quite likely that strikes are going to happen on the European stage. So if you are getting into or out of France through a different country, then you could be impacted. Air traffic control strikes can also affect you if you're passing over that country's airspace as well. So keep that in mind. In France, we've started to see some small and localized strikes this summer. So last week, flights were grounded for about 24 hours after three of France's smaller airports, Beauvais, Brest, and Carcassonne, had a strike from air traffic controllers over working conditions. So far... Yeah, like I mentioned, we're not seeing any large calls for strike action that would severely impact flights coming in or out of Charles de Gaulle or Orly, which are the two major airports in France in the Paris region. This could partially be due to the fact that Paris region airport workers have already had pay negotiations with management this year. But, you know, it's certainly possible that strike announcements will come later in the summer. So definitely keep an eye on the strike section on our website. And then as for riots, Ben, as you mentioned, the situation does seem to be improving slightly, but there is still a lot of tension in France. Things could flare up again. So as with strikes, we'll have the latest on our website. Thanks, Jen. Now, one big story that shook France last summer was wildfires, specifically down in the southwest and, of course, a record drought. What about this summer? What's in store? Do we know anything at the moment? Well, climate experts have been warning for the past several months that heat waves and drought will become more frequent and longer lasting in the coming years due to climate change. And much of France is already under some level of water restrictions, as we've mentioned before on this podcast. At the time of recording, uh, none of France's départements had been listed as being at elevated risk for wildfires on the new wildfire forecast uh, page Météo des Forêts. That does not mean that we shouldn't be prepared for wildfires, though. Um, some parts of France have already begun instituting rules about wild camping just out of an abundance of caution for wildfires. Summer is wildfire season and drought conditions can increase um, the risk of fires. OK, now one thing tourists can expect on a trip to France this summer is probably the sight of other tourists, Jen. Yes, absolutely. Tourism is on the rebound in France, and on the whole, we can expect large amounts of visitors in the summer of 2023, uh, particularly in Paris, which is nearing its pre-pandemic tourism levels, according to data from the town hall. There were 11.6 million visitors to the capital in the first quarter of 2023, which is just 2.5% lower than in 2019 before the start of the pandemic. Last year, we started to see tourism levels bouncing back across the rest of France as well, especially when it comes to spending. Tourists in France um, in the summer of 2022 spent a record 58 
1.8 billion euro, which is 1.2 billion higher than their pre-pandemic tourist spend. So several popular tourist destinations are anticipating big crowds this summer. Many of them have introduced quotas or are requiring visitors to book in advance. We have a great article on the website outlining which of the highly visited locations across France do require advanced booking. But basically, this all means that if you're planning a trip to France this summer, you should plan on having to book in advance for a lot of those popular tourist attractions, and you can expect lines to be long. Each summer, we also get reports from our readers about long lines at the main airports like Charles de Gaulle. Oftentimes, during the peak season, Paris regional airport authorities will recommend that you get to your international flight at least three hours in advance instead of just two. Fantastic. I will make sure we share those articles in the show notes and in the podcast article for listeners to catch up about those popular tourist attractions in France where you should book ahead. Thanks, Jen. Right, it's time for our reader question, and it's one for parents who are listening. Jen, this is a question we get asked a lot. What about parents who want to enroll their English-speaking kids in French schools? If they don't speak French, what can we tell them? What do they need to know? So we reached out to a lot of parents who have had this experience of enrolling their non-French-speaking kids into French schools, just to find out like what you can expect from that experience. And I'll pick out a few areas that the parents focused on. The big ones were how long it actually takes for your kid to learn how to speak French, how much French they're actually going to be taught in school, and what parents should expect in terms of after-school support and getting involved. So for the first one, when it came to fluency expectations, a lot of parents agreed that the amount of time it really takes for your child to become fluent depends on the kid. One parent, Victoria M. in Dordogne, moved to France with her kids when they were under the age of six. She said the typical thing of they'll be fluent in three months is not true. Multiple teachers told me that the children listen for a full year first and to expect speech in the second year. Another parent, Cara Trott in Charente Maritime, also said that she was told her kids would be fluent within six months, and she said that it takes longer than that. She told us each child is different. We had three boys aged eight, seven, and three. The eight-year-old struggled with the language most of the time. The seven-year-old was mute for months but picked up the language very well. And the three-year-old picked it up quickly, but he struggles with conjugation. Mm. Cara raises a good question, Jen. Does the help that a child get depend on their age? Yeah, so when it comes to learning French in school and getting individualized lessons, the situation does depend on the age of the pupil and the resources available at the school. So for kids in maternelle, that's basically preschool or ages three to six. If you stick your kid in the public school program, they will be put in a general group with other kids at their age. Um, and then at this level, there is not a dedicated course for non-French speakers, which was frustrating for some parents that responded to our survey. In elementary school and up, though, uh, non-French speaking kids are supposed to be given a specific time in the week to learn the French language. So before your child starts school, they would take an assessment called the CASNAV, and that basically gets an idea of what they've already learned in school, so like mathematics and writing, as well as their French language ability. If you're in an area with a lot of other foreign students, then they'll probably be put into a group called UPE2A. UPE2A. Uh, yes. Yeah, Yeah, there you go. And that is French as a second language program, basically. So your child is going to be mixed in with other pupils that are learning French. They'll get some specialized courses. And usually that goes for a maximum of one year, though it could be less depending on how quickly they their language level progresses. Mm, Our kids are in a school with a class that Upe Udoza, and it actually um, had a few kids who'd moved over from Ukraine at the start of the war. And um, yeah, they spent a few months in this class and then then we're kind of 
ushered into a normal mainstream class. And I was, um, they really kind of just picked it up and kind of settled, or they seemed to settle in to kind of the normal French class really quickly. It was quite depressing how quickly they learned French, Emma. Have you tried to get into one of these UPE de Zac classes? I should do, really, because they're Sneak free. In. And I, I'm not proud. I'm, I'm less good than a six-year-old speaking French. I accept that. It is depressing how quickly kids really do pick up French. Yeah, you see a lot of uh, sort of parents who after a while just start using their kids as like unpaid translators. Yes. They? Yeah, they'll be sort of saying to the kids, right, Right, go into the tax office and tell the man yeah. we need our forms. Yeah, definitely. Take the kids everywhere as a translator. Uh, Jen, do they offer this in every single French public school? Well, unfortunately, this class itself is not standard at all schools. If your child is the only non-French speaker, then they probably won't get like a completely individualized course of this, but they will get extra help in learning French. And that would probably consist of more individual tutoring from teachers. And then it really depends on the school itself and the resources available. A lot of parents said that the amount of French language instruction and, and assistance came down to the helpfulness of individual teachers as well. So Nicola Barfield in Haute-Savoie said that her college aged children children, so that's the start of secondary school, received French lessons until the children received the B1 level of the language. They did not take PE, art, music, etc., and instead they completed the French course. Meanwhile, another parent, Lisa Kopek, in the Paris area said that her elementary school age child received French lessons just once a week for one hour. Another parent, Victoria M., said that her elementary aged kids uh, spent two days a week learning with other international students. So yeah, the situation really depends on the school. You can expect that your kid will get assistance in learning French, but the amount depends. And then the last topic uh, most parents touched on was the importance of getting involved to support your kids. Uh, One parent, Phil Gibbs, said that other parents should be prepared to insist on extra help from the school and to hold the teacher to account, as well as to pay for home tutoring if affordable. Lisa Kopek said that joining the parents' WhatsApp group was a great way to stay connected and informed on what's going on at school, especially when your child is still learning French. And several other parents recommended signing kids up for after-school programs, which can be a great way to help them make French friends who will help them along in their language acquisition. Brilliant. Some great advice there, Jen. Thanks for that. And thanks to all those readers who contributed to that article, which you'll find in the podcast article and in the show notes and, of course, on our website. Guys, that brings us to the end of this episode, the final episode in the series before our summer break. Listeners who still want to listen to Talking France over the summer, we have loads of episodes that you can uh, look back on that we've recorded in the last few weeks. Emma, is any one stand out for you that people should tune into? Yeah, I think this has been a good series, actually. I think this has been our uh, our best one ever, in fact. But the one I particularly enjoyed was the nudism episode. Uh, it was Getting a, naked. Absolutely, yes. We, we didn't record it naked. We no. just talked about nakedness, just to be clear for the, uh, for the listeners. Um, but yes, it was a very fascinating look into this sort of subculture and very useful advice for the summer if you want to either get naked or avoid the willies. <laughs> <laughs> Jen? Uh, I think my favourite was How Living in France Changes You and Is Revolution in the Air After French Pensions Revolt. Mm. That was a good one. And it's also great because Emma gave us an incredible playlist of some classic French chansons, which are on the website. Mm. Okay, great. There you go, listeners. There's plenty in our back catalogue to keep you busy over the summer. And of course, this podcast is taking a break, but our work is not over. We'll be updating all the news and talking points in France on the website, thelocal.fr. If you want to become a member, you can take advantage of a half-price offer, $24.99 for an annual subscription over the summer. And we have a new app, which you can download, which makes reading the local easier than ever. Thanks to you all for tuning in in this latest series. 
We'll be back for more in September. And a final thanks to you, Emma and Jen, for all your contributions. And, of course, to John Litchfield, who joined us each week from Normandy. And, of course, to Reese Edwards, who produces this podcast. Thanks to you, Reese, And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. We'll be back with more Talking Points from France in September. Hope you enjoy the summer. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.